Hello and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Good Friday Lectionary. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Lydia Buckland, who is from Marquette, Michigan, and is the Canon to the Ordinary for Discipleship and Vitality with the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan, as well as the Director of the Mutual Ministry Initiative at Virginia Theological Seminary. The Reverend Chantaban, who serves as Associate Priest at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. As the only active woman priest of Pakistani descent in the Anglican Communion, she is passionate about advocating for justice, dignity, and respect for every human being as an outworking of our baptismal covenant. And last but not least, the Reverend Phil Hooper, SMMS, who serves as Associate Priest at Trinity Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Northern Indiana. Phil has interests in writing, contemplative spirituality, and creation care. Welcome, friends. Thank you all for being willing to be on the podcast. We're going to talk about Good Friday, which is part of the Triduum. So it's kind of like all good stories. It's a trilogy, right? And it's like the middle part of the service. What do folks need to keep in mind for Good Friday uh, this year, or and for Holy Week for that matter? And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is how many mothers have lost sons and how that relates to how we understand the crucifixion and the experiences that others are having of the crucifixion in the midst of so much violence against young men of color and others who've lost their lives needlessly. I've heard Sarah Miles say that Good Friday is the murder of God by God's people. Mm. And I think that's a really powerful understanding of our own complicity in the Good Friday that is unfolding every day, particularly, as you said, Shanta, with black and brown bodies who are crucified and tortured and humiliated and mocked and scorned, all of these things that happened to Jesus and that Here's Jesus fully embodied, hurting, suffering, just as we see with the violence. And to remember that violence begets violence. The response to violence with more violence is never that the violence ends. Mm. Feels like a tough time to talk about Good Friday, to preach about Good Friday in the midst of it. And yet all the more necessary that we do, perhaps. I think the thing I love about Good Friday, especially in light of what you both are raising, is that For me, it's one of the only times in our liturgical year that we just behold the pain and the violence and the death, especially that which we inflict upon the vulnerable, and that we just have to sit with it. We don't get to cover it with platitudes. Uh, We don't get to sort of pivot easily to resurrection promise. We just have to sit in that space of grief and sort of the shock of our participation in systems of death. Good Friday is a hard, deep day. I think it's so necessary because I don't think we can be fully human or really fully in community with one another until we get honest about the ways in which we inflict pain and are subject to pain, depending on where we stand. Without that honesty, how can we ever move forward into Easter Sunday, literally or figuratively? Sometimes we have this habit of becoming like the Hufflepuffs where, you know, everybody has to be happy or, you know, church should always be celebratory. And this is like one of the few times where we can really just kind of sit with our 
sadness or lament or you know whatever i remember going to a good friday service when i was little and they it was orthodox church so they like hammered the icon of jesus like into the thing and you can hear the hammer hit in the wood and i just remember being really moved by that as like fourth grader yeah yeah and i like started crying and my parents like, why are you crying? This is supposed to be happy. I'm like, Jesus is dead. <laughs> why am I supposed to be happy? <laughs> anyway, speaking of hammering the Jesus thing up, what liturgical suggestions do you have for Good Friday? I know sometimes people like reverence the cross or maybe there's solemn biddings and colics. What kind of suggestions do y'all have or ideas? This year, I'm actually helping with a children's service. So I'm trying to construct a children's liturgy or working with the diocesan children's liturgy to create something that is family friendly and yet still meaningful that conveys the story of what happened to Jesus and all that occurred on Good Friday without maybe the graphic aspects of that. But I also think back to how I came into the Episcopal Church. And one of those ways was through an Anglo-Catholic church. And I remember that they reverenced the cross. And I think there was a part of me that first thought, "Hmm, this is very odd. But when I had that experience of going forward, I actually took my shoes off. As a person of Pakistani descent, we take our shoes off when you're anticipating a holy moment, took my shoes off, I walked forward, and usually people will bow down at that church. They'll bow before the cross before they kiss Jesus's feet. And there are usually two or three priests who are holding the cross. And I just experienced that as very meaningful. I think there's a part of me at first that thought, oh my goodness, this is sort of, there's a little bit of horror here. But there was something about it that was very meaningful. And so there's a way in which I sort of want to be able to incorporate some of that, maybe a smaller cross for children to be able to look upon that and maybe to have the stations of the cross some way that is accessible to them, but also multi-sensory that's not graphic in the same way, but where the meaning is conveyed. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, Shanta. I think that importance of context before we decide what we're doing, that was such a great example of how with children, the graphic nature of it can kind of be all they see, right? And so being more subtle and how we get to that sense of meaning and understanding. I think the same is true looking at our own context and communities and how we speak about crucifixion and violence. For instance, you know, if I'm coming from a privileged, predominantly white community, maybe in a rural area, maybe not maybe in a suburban area, getting them to a place of Good Friday, I might enter in with their own Good Friday moments of healing and suffering. Hmm. And then figuring out how much of that veil we can lift for the shared witness of those others in our community who have been persecuted maybe by the state or maybe, you know, to make that connection. Um, I think we need to be careful of that, particularly in white communities, that voyeurism of talking about the suffering of others, and yet making that connection feels really important, really understanding our own contexts and how we approach it. I've seen Nadia Bowles-Weber did something when she was at House for All Sinners and Saints, the church she planted, where they used, I think, all together as a community, newspaper clippings to create collages for each of the stations of the cross based on news stories. And so that was a formation opportunity, too, for the congregations themselves to look at the theology around each. But I kind of like that idea of making the connection between what's happening now and what was happening then on the cross. 
It's interesting, Shanta, you mentioned your experience at an Anglo-Catholic parish, the embodiment that you experienced of worship in that. I serve presently at a a larger Anglo-Catholic parish. Its veneration of the cross is absolutely a major feature of our Good Friday liturgy. But one of the things that can happen in a community where some of those ritual practices occur over time is that it ceases to have the same impact as perhaps when you first encounter it. Mm. I think part of uh, at least what I'm working with in my context is inviting people through sort of advanced preparation and formation to sort of really re-engage sort of the possibilities of what these liturgical moments point toward. One of the things that we incorporate or that we at least offer as an option for when people come forward to venerate the cross, something that clergy do, is that we prostrate ourselves which is a very powerful physical gesture and not one that you see very often. Traditionally, it's only in Good Friday or perhaps in an ordination service. I have tried to be intentional about talking with people about really what that means, what it could mean, what the layers of meaning could be by putting our bodies in that position, how it could express both a reverence, but also a solidarity with those who are literally pushed to the ground in all sorts of ways. Feel free to, if that feels right to you, if the spirit moves you, like take on that embodiment, see what that feels like for you. Let that ritual gesture draw you deeper into this experience. Sometimes in some of our contexts, more white privileged communities, I think there's a rigidity almost, like there's a lack of ability to express. And I don't know what that is always about, but like, we have to be able to sort of enter fully into the lament, into the expression of our grief, because that is both an expression of solidarity with the others around us who suffer, but it's also liberating for ourselves. Because if we can't be honest about our own grief and our own experience of death, which Good Friday invites us into, then how can we ever truly be present to the suffering of the world around us? So it's sort of this dialogue that has to be ongoing. But I think as we prepare for the liturgy on Good Friday, thoughtful preparation for it is another component that we can offer. Okay, I've never wanted to venerate the cross until just now. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. (laughs) Shanta, I love what you said about children and I'm thinking about one of the things I appreciate about my growing up one thing I think as Indian people we do really well is death we have way far too much death in our communities but we aren't shielded from it so like you know we like as a child I remember going to funerals and you know the parents maybe spare the gory details but they you know they're like well this person's dead and you know they'll tell you the things and you can go up and see them and you know if it's your relative you might touch their body or whatever but I remember that saved me from having some sort of irrational fear of of it. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking was this activity I did once, and it was like we had a terracotta pot, and we talked about a time that we felt shattered. And like, you wrap the pot in a towel, and then we hit it with a hammer, and it, you know, it breaks. And then they brought like hot glue or something, and you wrote in like Sharpie on each piece as you glue it together, something that helped you get back together. So in Jesus's case, it would be, you know, the resurrection, but we might think about like, here's the something, you know, I remember when my friend asked me to sit with them at lunch or whatever, and so that might be a piece of the pot. And then you end up gluing that pot back together and you have this cool little pot with all these things that can help you feel better, but maybe not do that in the liturgy, but maybe that could be something you do just before or after or something as a way to process some of that grief that you might have. Is Isaiah talking about the Messiah? Is Isaiah talking about Jesus? Because that would be like anachronistic. What do you think about that? And what stands out for you? 
think it's dangerous. I think this is one of those places where we can, as Christians say, oh, yep, this is totally just prophetic vision that, yep, this was a leading into what actually is the truth, which is Jesus coming. And I don't think that that honors the Hebrew scriptures in the ways in which they were written. And yet there is, you know, I love the godly play questions of, I wonder, (laughs) I wonder how that came to be that it is so fitting for how we do then encounter Jesus and the ways that our Abrahamic faith intersect and that there can be many parts to the story and they can all be true and they can all be different. And that actually is something one of an indigenous leader taught to a youth group, we were visiting Mackinac Island and he was saying, I'm going to tell you one of the stories of creation. And there are many stories and this is only one of the stories, but we believe they are all true and they can all stand together. I think that the story in Isaiah and the story of Jesus can stand alongside and intersect and can be meaningful and we can make meaning of them without going to that kind of easy, like theological easy place of saying, oh, yep, this is just what was the fortune teller. Like (laughs) it's almost a cop out in some ways. It like takes away from the richness of it. Yeah. A common question whenever you get to the servant passages in Isaiah, like, who's the servant? Who's the servant? And we have our typical answer in in the Christian tradition. Well, it's Jesus. And, And so I think that gets your question. Who the servant is, is layered. And I think if we take the passage for what it is within its original context, even then it's multi-layered, even taking Jesus out of it, the servant could be understood to be Israel collectively. Mm. It could be some unidentified figure within that nation or that culture. It could be applied to any individual person who's sort of trying to follow God's law and is suffering as a result of that, sort of a, a paradigm of, of self-understanding for the people of Israel in their history. So there's like all these layers, even within just the Hebrew scripture itself. I totally agree with you, Lydia. Like then we add the layer of Jesus and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Robert Alt who has his relatively new translation of the Hebrew scriptures, one of his notes on this says that, you know, another layer is that this suffering servant might have been understood in its time as Isaiah himself. This is almost like a eulogy for the prophet. Mm. I think we can hold all of these with that sense of wonder and understand this, sure, as a sort of template or a lens through which to make sense of the senselessness of Jesus's crucifixion. And it doesn't have to be a one-and-done, simple answer. These things can coexist. As you were saying that, that made me think it could be Isaiah. But I also, as I'm reading it, if we if we substitute in there Jesus, it kind of brings us with some scary atonement theories, right? Like the penal substitutionary atonement and stuff. Yeah, that's where it gets into that really hard, heavy, creepy theology stuff that many of us wrestle with, depending on where we've come from. Mm -hmm. One thing that sort of stuck out to me this time as I was reading through and wrestling with that aspect of it, like the line in there, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. It's like, Mm. what do I do with that? The thing that sort of occurred to me this time on reading this is that whoever is speaking in this passage, it's not God. God is not saying, I, the Lord, desired to crush him with pain. 
these different like perspectives on the suffering of the servant are the voice of the people. And it kind of took me into the one of those moments when you're like caught in a crowd, maybe it's at a funeral, maybe it's at a sort of public vigil space where some senseless tragedy or suffering has happened. And you hear people wrestling and like offering different understandings of like, what does this mean? How do I reckon with this loss? And none of them are 100% true, but all of them speak to that deep desire to find meaning and purpose out of the suffering that all of us are bound to experience by walking on this earth. And so when I was like, oh, like I'm entering into the collective grief of the people in this servant song, like that, that allowed me to like have a little bit of breathing space from the idea like the Lord hath said he will suffer. It's kind of, you know, it's just like, no, like we all struggle to understand what suffering means and how it coincides with the goodness of God. And, and that is still true for us, just as it was for the people of Israel. You know, I was actually reading the part where it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And I think about silence and I think about oppression. I think it's interesting that a word referring to oppression is listed here because I think about the manifold forms of oppression that exist in our society and existed in society during the time of Isaiah and existed during the time of Jesus and the ways in which that has shifted or changed or not shifted and not changed. And I think about silence and who is silenced? Why are people silenced? In this case, was Jesus silence? And again, I don't mean to sort of displace the gospel passage onto the Isaiah passage, but whether we're talking about Isaiah or we're talking about the gospel passage, whoever was silenced, was it a choice to be silenced? Mm. Or was it part of the oppression? Is it part of the power of the experience and the injustice of the experience? And even for Jesus, I mean, I think very often I've interpreted it as Jesus made the choice to be silent. But did he? Is that part of his humanity that's peeking through, the part that's responding to the oppression? The same way there was this part of him that is sweating great drops of blood and is in great agony in the garden? Is there a way in which his silence is maybe not a heroic choice in the moment? Maybe it's a response to the suffering and the horror and the shock of everything that's happening in the way it might be for any human being who's going through tremendous suffering and torture and agony. I always think about like, if the person who's oppressed is silence, maybe they're silent because they're wanting their allies or others to come in and speak out against what's happening, right? And so often these bad things are allowed to happen because the bystanders aren't speaking out or aren't crying out for justice. And I, I remember one time when I experienced a really intense experience of racism and three friends were there and they did nothing. None of them said anything. And they just kind of, I just remember feeling so alone. Like I just was like by myself in this situation and none of them came to sort of even just to stand next to me as this was going on. And it was a very lonely feeling. Let's talk about the Psalm and kind of the experience that I think I just talked about was, was a time that I kind of cried out to God and was like, Hey, what is going on? You know, these past few years have been difficult for a lot of people. How does this psalm stand out for you? And when was the time that you've cried out to God? You know, I was going to respond a little bit differently before you asked that question. Even before you asked that question, I was thinking about young Black men who cried out for their mothers. Mm-hmm. And then I think about Jesus 
crying out to God mm-hmm. and the ways in which there's no relief for the pain and the suffering in that moment. And at the same time, is there comfort in crying out to the person who would provide comfort, the hope of that comfort, even if it is not realized? Can I think of times I've cried out to God? Yes, I absolutely have those moments and memories. Sitting with this psalm in particular in the context of Good Friday feels like a really great opportunity for me and maybe for other people to sort of engage in a practice that I think is generally helpful, which is to decenter myself from the psalms. We read the psalms, we pray with the psalms a lot in our liturgical tradition, definitely if we engage at all with like the morning or evening offices. Part of what we do in our prayer of the psalms or our hearing of the psalms is to sort of like place ourselves in them and be like, this is my voice crying out to God. And that's totally natural. I I think the facet of how we sort of get honest with God through the rawness of some of this language. But I also think it's good for us, some of us uh, in certain instances, to not just always make ourselves the star of the psalm Mm. or as the hero or as the whatever it is. And to remember that these psalms were composed and cried out really in many ways by people who were largely oppressed, subjugated at the edges of power. They were not necessarily just people sitting comfortably worrying about, you know, their next promotion at work or their uh, whatever, you know, relatively uh, less dire reality might be. Uh, So for me, if I want to sort of place myself in the center of the psalm, it might actually be more helpful for me to think about people of color who have suffered like true loss or people in other parts of the world who are going through true deprivation, whatever that might be. Maybe let me remember that this psalm was in fact written for people probably more in other types of contexts and situations than the one that I and my privilege happen to inhabit. Sometimes I think that's just like a good reality check for me and actually inspires me to work more on sort of compassion and presence versus seeing myself right in the middle of the narrative. Hmm. I was a hospice chaplain for about seven years and I covered half of Massachusetts. And I remember once driving back on an icy road and having the experience of my car turn around on four lanes of traffic, but I was now facing the traffic that was coming toward me. My car wouldn't move. And, you know, I'm like a deer in headlights watching this large vehicle comes straight toward me on an icy road. And I'm trying to figure out, do I get my wallet? Can I open the door? Can I undo my seatbelt? And I couldn't do any of those fast enough. And in that moment, when the vehicle's coming straight toward me, I find myself crying out and saying, Jesus, you've got to do something. And I just remember it felt very much like an exclamation, but simultaneously, it's a prayer. And in that moment, I don't know if I closed my eyes, but I felt this deep wash of peace. And I thought, is this how you feel just before you die? I'm not really sure. <laughs> and um, I saw darkness. And at that point, I thought I was actually dead. And I thought, but I wouldn't be thinking that I'm dead. And then I felt something slide across the front of my car. And it was all the wheels of that tractor trailer gliding across the front of my car. And in the process of that, it actually moved my car back in the direction it needed to be going. So I was now 45 degrees off course, but at least I'd gotten out from where I needed to go. And I got out of my car to look, and I could see this black smudge across the front of my license plate and my bumper. And I just stood there, and I looked ahead, and I saw this truck fishtailing on the ice and all these cars hitting one another. 
And I stopped to see how some of them were doing. I drove a little bit further up. I stopped to see how they were doing. They were all hit in places where people were not sitting. And I just remember thinking to myself, this was such an overwhelming experience, but a moment when I felt God's presence so deeply after crying out Mm. and not knowing what was going to happen, not even being able to hope that something positive would happen, but then seeing something really amazing happen. And I know that does not happen all the time. That may not happen in the future. But in that moment, to see all these amazing things happen, and it's a, it's a reminder of grace that when we pray, in that moment, I didn't do anything to deserve that. I didn't have to pray a special prayer. It was just literally crying out whatever was at what was top of mind. And so when I think about what Jesus is crying out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that is such a simple prayer. He's praying, he's crying out, he's speaking intimately with his father. Hmm. Grateful that you were able to tell that tale, you know, after such a harrowing experience beyond sort of like expectation of the future or what could happen or should have happened or whatever. There's just like a purity in that of it's just in that crisis moment, the life within you, the desire to live, the aliveness within you calling out to the aliveness of God, the insistence of life like manifesting itself in the face of death. I think about that calling out of Jesus and, you know, little kids especially will say, why is it called Good Friday? What's good about this day? I mean, and not just little kids, like I often think that too. (laughs) And I think that one good part is Jesus, right? It's Jesus calling out who at this point is like us, fully human and hurting and frail and thirsty. And he's speaking to all of us, like to everyone, to other people who are hurting, to people who are persecuted by the state, to the mothers, to his own mother. I mean, he calls out to his mother and to his friend and says, take care of one another in that moment, but also to the rulers of the world, to those people who are complicit in hurting others. Like Jesus is calling out is to everybody. And basically he's like, you have no power over me. Even death is not the end. Even death has no power in this moment. In your experience, Shanta, with like not knowing maybe you were dead and that deep peace with it. I had a similar experience. My dad was killed in a car accident, but this deep sense of peace of it's okay. Like, yes, he is at peace. He is not suffering. And there's an okayness about that and that we need to be here for one another and grieve and surely it's awful it's traumatic and there's that direct compassion or sense of solidarity maybe in the suffering that does make a difference like it does make a difference to have a divine experience of shared suffering and i don't know why that is i think that's part of the human experience that when we connect with others here in this way but connect with even the sacred and divine in that way it does shift something in us that helps us survive and helps us change into who we're called to be in community with one another if we're open to it and there's a vulnerability in that in experiencing that fully that some of us aren't there yet and that's okay too because jesus continues to call out from that cross and we have more opportunities to join in that healing together Let's talk about the gospel since we've kind of been talking about it. Lydia, as you were talking in Lakota culture, we always believe that when somebody dies, the relatives that are 
have gone already come back to greet them. You'll often see that as someone is dying, sometimes they're talking to people that you can't see, but those are the relatives and they're coming back. And so sometimes I wonder if like George Floyd called out to his mom, if that was like his mom coming and like he could see her already, you know, when she was there to take him on his spirit journey. One of the things that I think we sometimes have to think about in telling this story, because a lot of times it will say the Jews, how do we tell this story in a way that is not anti-Semitic and yet at the same time tell this story authentically? This is a really tough one. I know this is one that the church is wrestling with broadly. It came up at general convention. Mm -hmm. I know there are proposals to even consider taking this out of the lectionary for Holy Week because of a perspective that somehow the text itself, it's hard to get beyond that sort of troubling language and how it can be sort of used in an anti-Semitic way. I don't have an easy, good answer to that question necessarily, but within the current reality that this is the lectionary and that this is the text that has been part of the Holy Week tradition, you know, through the centuries of the church, and this is what we're grappling with. One of the, the things that is good for everyone to remember who's involved in preaching or liturgical leadership generally is that all of the pieces of this, these liturgies have to work in concert with one another. So if there's something challenging in the readings, then we have to take every opportunity we can to contextualize it and speak to the challenges of it in the spaces where we can, whether that's in sort of formation spaces and name it, just name the thing. Don't just gloss it over or just necessarily be silent about the challenges or the ways in which this can be twisted and has been twisted throughout history to the suffering of many, many people, Mm. uh, Jewish people in particular. Again, back to that idea of silence, like one of the best things that we can do with the present reality is to not be silent about what has been done with this text in the past so that it will not be done again. I think it's a good opportunity to talk about ways we're complicit with the empire today mm-hmm. and to tell some of that truth. We talk about the need to tell the truth and the truth was that religious leaders then and now were complicit with some really unethical, awful things, including the murder of folks and how we distribute wealth and power and how we steal things from people. I mean, this is a story that's an old story about ways that those of us who otherwise could have made other decisions have gone along with those in power in order to protect ourselves or better ourselves. And so I think naming that is important because it's not any one in particular person. It's about how we've been complicit and we continue to be, and that's why we confess our sins. That's why we continue to practice together in community, choosing different ways of being and reminding ourselves of the different choices we might make in every part of our daily lives in order to be countercultural. That's who we're called to be as Christians. It is a countercultural way of being. It is a way that doesn't choose consumerism and capitalism and violence and protection of ourselves over others and false boundaries, but to present ourselves wide open with our arms on the cross, receiving and giving, which means choosing to speak up against the powers rather than going with it. And I think these stories actually give us great examples of how we as humans fall short without villainizing anyone, with saying, look, even his closest disciples who loved him had a hard time in that moment saying, yeah, I'm with him. Hmm. We need that part of the story in there in order to recognize the times we might fall 
victim to that as well. And then to try harder to do better. I have been so interested in the conversation in the church about the possibility of using a different gospel or how we actually address this issue. I remember one year when I was at Tufts University, I was a chaplain there, ended up preaching on this particular passage, but also discovered some really interesting reference materials that lift up other voices and other characters. And so there's a County Cullen poem. He was part of the Harlem Renaissance, and it's called Simon the Cyrenian Speaks. And then there's a book that I mentioned to Shaniqua. It's called Simon of Cyrene, A Case of Roman Description. It's by Stephanie Buckton and Powder. I read this book a long time ago, and I'd always wanted to somehow lift up the character Simon of Cyrene and was able to do that. And it was interesting because in some ways it was a way of really talking about the Roman Empire and talking about the ways in which the Roman Empire was complicit with Jesus' death and actually directed it. And so he directed the energy away from the anti-Semitic pieces of scripture and had a way of showcasing what it was like for a Black person, or a person perhaps of Ethiopian descent, to be there in the crowd and to be pulled out from the crowd, possibly because that person was noticeable. There's a lot that was happening possibly at that time, that's very similar to what might be happening here hmm. in our contemporary culture when we think about racial profiling. And so to pull someone out from the crowd, when I was growing up, we thought of, this is a great honor for Simon Osiris, but it really wasn't. There was a way in which he was maybe more noticeable, maybe he was considered to be lesser than other people, and would be the person that the Romans would pull to come and to carry the cross for Jesus over and against other people who might have fit into the cultural demographic there. And so this book and this poem together were really about lifting up the story and the experience of Simon of Cyrene as he was preceding Jesus to the cross and the ways in which his taking that time and alleviating that burden for Jesus during that time, even though it was suffering for Simon of Cyrene as well, allowed Jesus to perhaps get to the cross without dying on the way and to fulfill a salvific plan. So it was a way of sort of navigating the anti-Semitic pieces and taking some attention away from that and placing the attention upon the Roman Empire and Simon of Cyrene himself, who tends to be a character we don't really talk about. Hmm. Those two pieces, the poem and the academic research, are so powerful. They're paired together. Hmm. I always think about how, like, how sometimes we get lumped together as Christians, right? Just like how if you were to lump together all the Jews, it's like, you could say Christians and, you know, some people are going to have images of, like, Catholicism or some people might have images of, like, the America first, da-da-da-da-da, kind of, you know, like, all that evangelical, sneaky Jesus Christianity. And we have to think of that as a multifaceted thing, just like, you know, Islam, you know, we people like to lump together Muslims and just think they're terrorists, but there's a whole host of, you know, different, even like Sunni versus Shiite. And, and there's a whole host of differences. And we have to think about that too. And Christianity, if we were to look at the very beginning is very different than how it might be. Now. I love these ideas. Last episode, we talked a lot with the guests about Judas and we processed a little bit like who's, how do we look at Jesus and da 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 And what's something you think we can learn from the story of Judas's betrayal or Judas's experience? Judas fascinates me. Maybe it's just that wanting to find redemption. And I know there are, you know, centuries worth of 
interpretations and, and sort of wondering about why he did what he did. I think the one that's captured my imagination the most, the one that I sit with, maybe just because of my own life story or journey, the read that Judas was passionately devoted to Jesus that he was in some ways one of the most zealous believers in what he thought Jesus was or who he thought Jesus was. But obviously Jesus was not who he thought he was or who he expected him to be, and that created some sort of disillusionment. Led him to take out his disappointment in a really awful way. And, and I think for me, it's always spoken to the real danger that I think any of us can experience in objectifying the things or the people that we love. Mm. That I can say, mm. I love you, but if I love you on my terms, if I love you because of what I think you can do for me, if I love you as a prop in the narrative that's spinning out in my head about the way the world is or should be, then that's not actually love. And I'm not actually being open to the fullness of who you are. And I'll say just on a personal level, I am guilty of that sin. I'm guilty of objectifying the people I love. I find Judas's humanity in that reflection. I also find a, sort of the cautionary tale that I think can apply to so many of us. And, you know, we could expand that more broadly to the ways in which we objectify entire groups of people, mm. not seeing them as people with whom to be in relationship on their own terms, learning from their experience, their truth, their reality, but just who or what we expect them to be or want them to be for us. That's kind of where Judas lands for me. Gosh, that's so good. I always wonder if it's like, what things are human nature that we just like have to kind of fight against? And in Judas's story, I see a little boy longing to be loved and accepted and seen and valued and, you know, perhaps centering around such a charismatic, loving, amazing figure as Jesus, there is some sense of inferiority or, as you said, Phil, you know, the sense that objectification, absolutely. And then he erroneously acts out in an immature way by one-upping him and saying, I can give you access to Jesus. You want the scoop? I got it. Which makes him feel special and makes him feel like he's got something to offer in a way that fills whatever his empty well is within his self and then regrets it immediately. I mean, I have absolutely found myself guilty of that when you have like a nugget of something that's so good and juicy that you're like, ooh, everyone's gonna love me if I spill this tea. Yeah, You do it and you're like, oh God, what did I just do? That was not worth it. That was not worth being the center of someone's like glory or whatever I got from it. Mm. It's just such a such an emotionally immature way of responding in order to gain love that also is like so easy to fall into. And what an example of like the biggest mistake ever. Right? Yeah, sometimes I think to myself about their ages and Jesus was older for that time. And for many of them, I sort of wonder what age Judas was. Maybe he was a teenager. And so Lydia, as you mentioned, it would make sense that there was an immaturity. Maybe there wasn't a frontal cortex development. And so he's not through consequences of his actions he's just there in that moment maybe he wants to be popular maybe he knew he wasn't one of the more popular disciples around jesus wasn't sort of at the center of things with peter james and john and so maybe this is the way in which he was trying to 
cultivate some popularity with other religious leaders, it makes me sort of wonder what his relationship really was with Jesus. Because in this passage, it says very clearly, Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them. So Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's going to happen when he's at dinner with them. I'm curious, was Judas maybe on the periphery? Was he maybe curious? Ultimately, he plays the role he's supposed to play. There was something that needed to happen in the story to get us to the point of the cross. He was it. Like you were saying, Shanta, Jesus knew it was going to happen. You cannot live in the way that Jesus lived, giving of himself and calling for that kind of change without there then being pushback, a swing of the pendulum in the other way. That sense of wonder, like you were saying, Shanta, I wonder this about Judas, or I wonder this. I think that's, in my opinion, that's a good general principle to approach Judas, approach with a sense of wonder and curiosity, like don't turn anyone into a caricature, Hmm. approach with curiosity, consider all the nuances and layers of their humanity, the complexity of themselves and the systems in which they find themselves operating and explore the depths of what might be true. So who or what have we as a church or society given over to Pilate for crucifixion? One of the things that I think about when I hear that is kind of the way that the church has been tied up in colonization, you know, like the church sort of gave over the genocide committed against indigenous children, very real way were crucified so that the church could grow or could whatever happened, all that mess. Once the church became enmeshed in empire, the church took Pilate's seat. Mm. The church implicated itself in the very system that it was born in out of struggle against. We, the collective church across time, have played the part of Pilate for centuries in many ways, sort of, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of angst and wondering about sort of the church post-Christendom, but in many ways, I think getting back to some of the roots of of liberation and vulnerability and non-empire aligned values that it started with. I don't know that we're even ready to unpack all of the ways that we are pilot. Hmm. It is so deep within our structure, who benefits from it, what voices we hear, what people we see, how we gather in our communities, how we use our buildings, Hmm. how did we obtain our buildings, how unjust the economic systems (laughs) across the church are, how many treasures we have buried that could be feeding people, the political power we have that we could be using to advocate for the freeing of prisoners. I mean, come on, we are complicit in so many ways that if we truly wanted to live this gospel life could actually be making huge changes. And that's, I celebrate with you, Phil, this idea that like, maybe we can move to decolonizing once we get past this post-Christendom era where we stop seeing ourselves as the center of everything. We are not the center. It is God. It is Christ at the center. We are agents for reconciliation and hope and love out in the world. If that's not what we are, we need to really pray about that and reevaluate who we are in the space that we take up in the ways that we're using our resources. Repent in the truest sense. Yes. Bishop Tom Ray here in Northern Michigan used to say that when access to the sacraments is tied to a community's annual budget, we've got an issue of social justice. Mm. Even how we 
form folks for ministry and how we live into our diaconal, apostolic, and priestly ministries and who has access to that and who doesn't. Part of abdicating our baptismal responsibilities and rights into this more elitist, professionalized, transactional way of being church that I really think we could shift. I'm always floored. I don't know if it's across the church, but for sure in South Dakota, we were told you provide the sacraments for free, period. That's just how we do all of them. And I'm always shocked at the quotes I get from people. Like they come and they're like, can you marry us? And I'm like, yes, you have to, I mean, there's some hoops you have to jump that we have to meet three times and all this stuff. But this native couple, they don't have any money. I mean, they are barely making it by and they love each other. And so, yes, of course we're going to marry them, but they were quoted like $1,500 to get married at the UCC church. I'm like, what? Or, you know, I mean, there's like this constant sort of flow, I think, from a lot of the Native families who need funerals. And it's like, of course, we're going to do your funeral. And we don't charge you to do your funeral because this is part of our job as being the church, right? We need to help you as you do these transitions in your life. That's a part of what we're called to. But I'm just always shocked at how much people charge for something that should just be a basic right, right? Both meanings of the right. (laughs) R-I-T-E and R-I-G-H-T. Because those rites and those rituals, they belong to God, not to us. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. The grace contained therein is freely flowing, freely given. I was thinking about the fact that we're treating the church as if it were another organization in the world. There's a way in which everything is a transaction. Mm. If people aren't able to afford the transaction, there's a way in which they don't belong or they don't deserve this. That is deeply problematic. And I didn't really think about it until you said it, but that's a way in which we become like Judas. You're betraying the sacred trust. You're betraying the order to which God has allowed us to be ordained, betraying this call. And we are betraying it for the 40 pieces of silver or whatever it is. Mm. It's so good because when we combine our resources, just like the gospel says, put everything in the middle and God provides. We have enough even beyond the Episcopal Church, but as an Episcopal Church, we do have enough resources where people could be evenly served. Where do you see yourself in the passion story? Mine changes year to year, sometimes even day to day, but where do you see yourself? Lately, it's been in the crowd. Like, I feel like I'm the bystander that doesn't always speak out when other people are suffering, and I need to do more of that. I see myself in so many of these characters, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they're doing what they can, but they're doing it sort of in secret out of a sense of fear. If I'm placing myself in their shoes, I can think of moments where I have been afraid, afraid of my faith, afraid of the cost of my faith. Hmm. And other times we are, you know, alongside Jesus's mother and, and the other women bearing witness and being present, maybe not being able to do anything to fix the problem, but just like offering the strength of presence. The thing that I think I appreciate about this narrative, about the passion narrative, is that it is a a narrative without a hero. I don't think there are any heroes in the passion story. I include Jesus in that. Hmm. If I'm speaking of like the conventional stories and tropes that we operate on of heroes, you know, the bold, strong person who saves the day or fixes the problem, there is no single person here who in a conventional way Mm -hmm. solves the problem of evil. Everyone plays their part, some to lesser degrees, some to greater degrees, some are more helpful, some are decidedly not helpful in any kind of way, but everyone has their part to play. And that sort of nuanced 
complexity of the characters, I think, makes it feel more real to me. And even Jesus, who I suppose would generally be construed as like the hero of the story, and I'm certainly not going to place myself necessarily in his shoes when I'm imagining where I fall in this narrative, not at least other than by the grace in which I'm united to the body of Christ. Even Jesus himself, I think, in this story, like destroys the concept of the conventional hero. He sort of liberates us from needing to see ourselves or any one particular person as our savior, to be the savior, to look for another savior. Ultimately, I think Jesus's invitation is that he invites us into a collective participation in the salvation that he effected. In the same way that we have our parts to play in the degradation of the world as represented in Good Friday, so we have our collective parts to play in the reconciliation and healing of the world hmm. in the light of Easter. It's sort of like I just see myself in that shared collective experience. I'm with you, Shaniqua, around a spectator. And I think of this story that I heard that was so powerful. There's a rabbi named Ariel Berger who does some work with Parker Palmer sometimes. And I think it was on a podcast. I heard him tell this story that his son went to Poland to be with other youth and to visit sites of concentration camps and other places that used to be these thriving Jewish communities. And his son's friend, who he was like roomed with, during this experience, disappeared for a day and came back. And he said, oh, where did you go? And he said, I had to go visit someone. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors and they were deported to Auschwitz and his grandfather had to go to the men's side. Grandmother went to the women's side. The side she went on was like this rabbit farm that was being led by a Polish gentleman. So this Polish guy used to keep getting in trouble for giving them food and for helping them. And the grandmother got her arm cut on the fence and it became really infected. And, you know, anyone else could have just taken antibiotics and been cured from it, but they weren't going to give a Jewish woman antibiotics. And so the gentleman who owned the rabbit farm went, cut his own arm and put it up against her arm on the fence to become infected himself and then went to the Nazis and said, I have this disease, you need my farm, I'm a productive worker, you need to give me medicine for healing, which they did because they cared more about productivity than they did about people's lives. And so he gave her half of the medication and saved mm. her life. So Ariel talks about how do we move from spectator to witness, to like seeing someone's pain to actually being standing alongside someone's pain, like actually entering into someone's own pain and suffering in order to be part of the healing. And that story just sticks with me. And I think about like, what is it that makes me take action or move into a place of shared suffering in order to be part of the healing? I don't know what the answer is to help others get to that place, but I just think about the difference between spectating, between watching from the crowd and becoming an actual disciple of Jesus. Hmm. What tips do you have or what ideas do you have for preaching on Good Friday? Some advice I would offer is to encourage others to remember that Good Friday is not just about one-on-one -on -one personal encounter between me and Jesus up there on the cross. It's not just about gazing upon the body of my Savior in that sort of individualistic way. Hmm. But I think to invite people into a reminder that Good Friday and this experience, this honesty about death and suffering and the systems that produce it, is that the cross is not 
an ornament for us to gaze upon, but it is actually sort of like a crack in the wall. It's like a crack in the wall of the defenses and the privileges some of us amass around ourselves. So I would just encourage people to, if they are preaching, to link the story to the broader story of crucifixion and suffering in the world and to not let this just be a personal sort of pious encounter, but one that forces us to gaze upon the face of the crucified here and now. Hmm. I think sitting with the wondering questions feels right. I don't as a preacher need to have the answers. This is certainly a rich, holy day for folks who experience it to embody it and to make their own meaning out of it. And so this is one of those times I would caution against kind of the sage on the stage preacher being the one to have all the answers and to tell folks how they should be experiencing it, but rather invite people mm. into experiencing it for what they need and where they are and to make meaning in a really deep transformative way to welcome them into that space to wrestle with some of the things we've been wrestling with. Thank you all so much for being willing to be on this podcast, especially this isn't the sexiest day, right? The One of the lower points in the, in the liturgical year, but I so appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your stories and your ideas. Thank you so much. I always learn so much from y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. You are such a blessing and it's so nice to be with these lovely people as well. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Lydia, Shanta, and Phil. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that moved you today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, Get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec.com. Love always.